Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. Please allow me to remind you that if you haven't already done so, you may sign up for our weekly podcast and have sermons like these delivered to your MP3 player every week. Just go to our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com and select the link for podcasts at iTunes on the right-hand side of the page. We hope you're benefited by these lessons. The lesson you're about to hear was presented on March 22, 2009. I know we all want to get the saving message of the gospel out to other folks. However, we often struggle. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul wrote that we should walk in wisdom toward outsiders. In this lesson, we examine the context of that verse to gain some of that wisdom. So open your Bible and let's learn how to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now it came to pass that a group existed that called themselves fishermen. There were many fish in the waters about them. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, and month after month, and year after year, the group that called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about those who called to fish, the abundance of fish, and how we might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing meant, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing be the primary talk of fishermen. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings for local fishing headquarters, and their plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and that everyone should fish. However, the one thing they did not do, they did not fish. In addition to meeting regularly, these men determined to send out fishermen to places where there were many fish. The sending committee was headed by those who had great vision and had courage to speak about fishing and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes held meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the one thing the staff and the committee members did not do, they did not fish. Large, elaborate training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of the fish, the nature of the fish, how to find fish, and the psychological effects of fishing. Those who taught had doctorates in fishiology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught about fishing. Further, the fishermen built large printing houses to publish fishing guides. Presses were kept busy day and night to produce material solely devoted to fishing methods. A speakers bureau was also organized to schedule special speakers on fishing. After one stirring meeting entitled The Necessity of Fishing, two young men left the meeting and actually went fishing, and one of them actually caught two fish. He was honored for his great catch and was scheduled to appear at all the big meetings to tell how he did it. So he quit fishing in order to have time to tell his experiences to the other fishermen. Now it is true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and had to put up with the smell of dead fish. Some had to endure the ridicule of some who made fun of these fishermen's clubs because they claimed to be fishermen, but they didn't fish. And they wondered about those who thought it was of little use to attend meetings and talk about fishing. I mean, after all, were they not following the master who said, Come, and I will make you fishers of men? Imagine their chagrin when someone actually suggested that they were not really fishermen. Yet it did make sense. Can we rightfully call a person a fisherman if year after year he never goes fishing? This morning I want to talk about fishing. I want to talk about fishing for men. Because that is what we need to be doing. We need to be out in the waters, casting our rod, throwing our nets, taking the gospel message to others. 
And certainly, of course, with the sarcasm of that story and the humor that it presented to us, I do think, however, that we need to take time to talk about it. In fact, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, it said, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That means before we just grab our tackle box and go to fishing, we do need to think about it. We do need to stop and talk and discuss what is the wise way to go fishing. So I want us to look at the context of Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. I think that context tells us how we can walk in wisdom toward outsiders. How we can get out there and be fishers of men the way God wants us to be. I hope that by the time we're done, this is not just another class on fishing. But rather it will be something that will help motivate us to get out and fish. I hope that by the time we're done, we don't leave here feeling guilty because we haven't been fishing enough, but rather motivated to just go ahead and start doing today or to improve or be better at it. That's what I hope we can do as we take a look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So, let's get out our tackle boxes, let's pick up our rods and nets, let's put on our waders, and let's get out in the water and start fishing. Before we look at this text, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty, glorious God in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for loving us. We're amazed, Father, that you allow us to be a part of your plan. We're amazed that you allow us to take your word to others, but we're so thankful that you let us. We're thankful that you trusted us. We're thankful that you have entrusted your gospel to us, and we pray that you will strengthen us, that we might be trustworthy stewards of this great grace you've bestowed upon us. Father, help us. Where we have fears, take those away. Help us to surrender those fears to you. Where we have weakness, help us to be strong. Help us to bring hope and encouragement. Help us to bring light to the world. Father, we pray that you help us to take your message of glorious freedom to everyone who is enslaved to Satan and to sin. And help us to show them your path that leads to eternal life. Help us to follow that path. Help us to be examples of it. Forgive us where we've fallen short in these things, Father. We are weak. We do sin. We ask that you would help us have victory over that. And help us to rely on your strength. Be our rock and our shield. And help us to go out into the world so that others can be a part of your family as well. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. As I consider this passage in the context and look at what it says to us about walking in wisdom, I, first of all, can't help but notice that Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, comes right on the heel of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through chapter 4, verse 1. Now, I'm not talking about the numbers. That's not surprising at all. What I'm talking about is the content. In fact, what I learned by where this is placed is that if we're going to be fishers of men, we have to base evangelism on a changed life. I'd just like for you to turn back to Colossians 3 and begin in verse 1. Let's just read what Paul says in this chapter. If you'll follow along, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul wrote, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12 says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The Colossians would live by Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, because they were following what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3. Here were people who in the past had lived in sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. They had walked in anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying. And they did all those things because they had set their mind on things below. But now, Paul having taught them the gospel, Paul encourages them, set your mind on things above. And that made all the difference. Now there's a change. Instead of their mind being set on the earthly and the fleshly things, Their mind is set on the heavenly and the spiritual things. And now they're walking in compassion and kindness and and tenderheartedness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and forbearance and love and peace. See here, there is a change in their lives. In fact, Paul goes on to point out that this change isn't just in, in some of these ethereal type of attitudes. It's going to have a very practical effect. It's going to change the way things are in their marriage. As wives submit to their husbands and as husbands love their wives, it's going to change the things in the parent-child relationship. As parents raise their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and as children obey and honor their parents, it changes that relationship here it's used between servants and masters. We can think of it regarding our workplace. As those who were masters would treat those who were under them with kindness and those who were the workers would work as for the Lord. There's a change that takes place here. And it's not just just a change of mind. It's a change of action that affects everything in our lives. We can think of a very specific example in Philemon. 
in the book of Philemon, remember that Philemon was one of these Colossians, if we understand the connections properly. And in the book of Philemon, Paul talked about Onesimus, who had been one of Philemon's servants, one of the slaves. And in verse 11 of Philemon, he says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. There was a change in his life. If we want our evangelism to be effective, we need to base it on a changed life. I want to share something with you about this, and I hope that I can provide the proper balance so that nobody goes away here thinking I'm, I'm saying something that I'm not. I am concerned that we, as Christians in general, not, not everybody, but, but a lot of folks that I've talked with and dealt with, and myself, I've done this, that we've made a mistake when it comes to evangelistic issues. Far too often, because the most common type of evangelism we do is to go to those who are in churches that we believe are teaching error and trying to talk to them, we, we often have this kind of we're right, you're wrong motivation. And, and we're just out trying to demonstrate that we're doing right and y'all are doing wrong and they, they can come in and, and then start doing right along with us. And I've known some people that can be highly motivated by that to get out and, and teach because of that, but I haven't known very many that are, are really motivated by that. In fact, sometimes I am concerned that it may cause us more problems than it does good. Because with that kind of motivation, what seems to happen all too often is we turn against each other because we found out that maybe you're not right. And instead of bringing folks in, we're pushing folks away and dividing off. Now, don't misunderstand. Truth is utterly important. John chapter 8 and verse 32. John chapter 8 and verse 32. Jesus explains just how important truth is. In John 8 and verse 32, Jesus said to us, And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Without the truth, we cannot be set free. We need the truth. So please don't go away saying, oh, I don't get it. Edwin, Edwin said we didn't need to be right. We didn't need truth. That's not what I'm saying. I want you to look at this verse again, though. Notice what Jesus said. John 8:32. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you right. Is that what yours says? Because that's not what mine says. Mine says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Sadly, I think that we have too often made truth the goal. And that's just not the case. Truth is not the goal. Truth is the means to the goal. The goal is freedom. We can't get that goal without truth, but truth is not the goal. Truth is the means to accomplish the goal, and that is freedom. Freedom from what? Look in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 18. Romans chapter 6 and verse 18. Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then again in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. Look in Romans 8 beginning at verse 1. In Romans 8 and verse 1, there is now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, 
by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. From what do we need to be set free? From sin. And from the enslavement of sin. Romans chapter 7, that's what it talks about. I, I don't do what I want. I do what I don't want. How am I going to get out of this? Uh, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then he follows it up with this, that through Jesus we can be delivered. Why do we need the truth? Because the truth sets us free from sin. I fear that one of the reasons we don't evangelize more is because we're not basing it on that changed life, on having been set free, on understanding the great promise of the gospel, not just to merely give us forgiveness, but to help us overcome. I know what it's like to have truth as the goal and not freedom from sin. I know what it's like to, to argue to be right about things and want everybody to know that I'm right and yet still be enslaved to sin. And as I look at numerous Christians all over the nation that I've talked with and, and met with and online, I mean, it's amazing, online, you know, we can talk with people all over the place. And I fear that there are a whole lot of people who have the goal of truth, but they're not letting the truth set them free. Why is it that we repeatedly hear the stories of elders and preachers who are right? They know the truth. They're right on everything from the plan of salvation to exactly what can be done in a church building. They're right on how somebody's supposed to dress. They're right on how somebody's supposed to speak. They can shell the corn and they can lay it down, and yet then we find out that they fall into sexual immorality or some other sin. Why is that happening at all? let alone as often as it happens. I think it's because we've had truth as our goal. Instead of recognizing that God gave us the truth, not just to be an end unto itself, but to free us from our sins. And first of all, I want to share with you, if you get into the truth and you surrender to Jesus and the truth, you can be set free. It's not just, I can't help it, I'm going to be sinning all the time, but at least I'm forgiven. It just doesn't work that way. Not only forgiven, but set free. And as we follow what Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, when we're living by that faith, surrendering ourselves to God, surrendering everything in our lives to God, and just doing what he wants us to do, just, just letting him have control, Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23, demonstrates that the fruit of the Spirit will be in our lives. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. No, recognize, that passage says that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's not, that passage there is not saying that when you do these things, you'll be in the Spirit. It's saying when you're walking in the Spirit, this is what will be in your life. You'll have love. You'll have patience. You'll have peace. You'll have joy. You can have that. That's the promise of God. It comes 
Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But if you do what Galatians 2.20 says and submit to Jesus and surrender your life to Him, that's what's going to happen in your life. That's God's promise. And we can take that message to others. We can share with others that very message of freedom. I have no doubt that brings up a problem for some of us here this morning. And that is is that some of us here do know the truth. But we're still not free. We haven't allowed the truth to set us free. And we haven't allowed the truth to change us, except for in minor ways. Oh, sure, we're going to church now more often. And we've stopped some of the big things. But if you've still got that enslavement to sin, you're not having the progressive victory over sin by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether the sin is lust or lying or sexual immorality or drugs or alcohol or gambling or coveting or or gossip or outbursts of wrath or stealing, whatever the sin is, if if you're still enslaved to it, well, Colossians chapter 4 verse 5 is not going to come to you very easily. But think about what would happen if instead of just being motivated because, hey, I know what's right and you don't, so I'm going to take it to you, instead we were motivated by... I found the truth and it set me free. I was enslaved to this sin over here and now I'm having victory over it. And then you see somebody else enslaved in that sin, what are you likely to do? Likely to tell them about it. Fishing needs to be based on a changed life. I'll tell you what. There's a lot of folks, I'm sure, out there that are interested in some of the academic discussion. But there'll be a lot more folks that if they see changes in our life, and we can tell them how we've changed, a lot more folks will listen to us. Instead of us just trying to pretend like we're just awesome and we've always been this way, and boy, if you were as good as me, you might be a Christian. Instead, if we let them know, if you're as bad as me, you know what you need? You need Christ so that you can be set free. The second thing I recognize from the passage is that we need to empower evangelism with prayer. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2 starts off by saying, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful in it. Being alert or vigilant, some translations say. Strong's enhanced lexicon says that, that that word means Uh, essentially to give attention to or to take heed and be careful about, lest by remission and indolence we be overcome by a sudden disastrous catastrophe. Being on the alert, watching. It is the picture of the guard who's up on the tower because we never know when the enemy is going to be coming toward us. And so it says be watchful in prayer, take heed, because if we don't pray, there's going to be a sudden disastrous calamity that overtakes us. The thing that we need to recognize is that when we talk about saving a soul, well, I can't do that. And you can't do it. And I know sometimes through figures of speech, and I think it's perfectly legitimate to use these figures of speech, we we talk about someone having been saved by someone else, and what we mean is they taught them the gospel and that person did become a child of God. But in the reality of 
being saved, taking a lost person and becoming a child of God who is now forgiven and on their way to heaven. I can't do that. And you can't do that. There's not a single one of us that is that powerful. But God in heaven is that powerful. The reality is that there's no set of plans or programs that we can come up with that's going to light the world on fire. If we don't have the hand of God with us, folks aren't going to listen. We don't have the hand of God with us. If they do listen, they won't be coming. They won't be becoming His children. We're doing something else. Our evangelism only has power when we're connecting to the great power of the universe in prayer. And Paul here mentions two things about which we need to pray when it comes to evangelism and fishing for men. He says in verse three, at that same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. We need to pray that God would open doors. We need to pray that God would give us opportunities. We need to pray that God will put us in the presence of the lost, that we can talk to them, that that we'll have opportunity to invite folks to come to our assemblies, that we'll have opportunity to invite people to have a study, that conversations will come up that will lend themselves to spiritual things. We need to be praying that God would give us opportunities. What would happen? If, if each of us started spending hours every week just praying that God would give us opportunities and open doors. I understand that, that we often say that. In fact, probably at the end of the assembly today, whoever's leading the closing prayer uh, might say, God, give us open doors. We hear that uh, on occasion in our prayers. God, give us open some doors for us. But I think about Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and verse 5. Luke chapter 11 and verse 5, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. What if we were persistent? What if that prayer was not just something we sprinkled throughout our assemblies every once in a while? What if that was just a common thing that we started praying for every day and spent some time praying for it, longer than just the statement, but but repeating it and saying it in different ways? What if we were like this person who needed something that went to the neighbor and kept banging on the door and we just kept saying to God, open some doors, open some doors, open some doors. Do you think God might open some doors? I fear... But the reason why we see such a dearth of effective evangelism, not, and I'm not just talking about here, I'm talking about in the brotherhood in general, is because we're doing all kinds of things about plans and programs, but we're not praying enough. Paul said, pray that we would have open doors. If Paul needed God to open doors for him, what do you think about us? And then the second thing here, in verse 4, that I may make it clear Jason's translation said manifest when he read that for us a few moments ago. That I may make it manifest or clear. We need to pray that God uses us to speak it clearly. Pray that God will be with us. That God will guide us and help us so that we can have understanding and so that that when we present the gospel, we can do it in a clear way. One of the things that keeps so many of us from getting out there and teaching the gospel is we're just afraid we don't know how to do it. We're just afraid that we'll somehow mess it up, that that we can't speak it clearly. And I understand that fear. But maybe if we just backed up and and did what this said and pray that God would help us make it clear. And then just do the best we can. Surrender that to God. 
Just, just do what you can where you are. And pray that God will help you and give you the strength. What if we prayed for that? I think for me, I know what the problem has often been. And that's arrogance and pride. For me, the problem has often been that, that I want to somehow come up with the absolute perfect way to teach the gospel so that nobody would ever walk away from it. But man, if I could just come up with this one way and, and it'd be fail-proof and foolproof and just be able to go and teach that and, and then I'll get out there and teach. But that way just doesn't exist. And you notice who that puts all the burden on? Me. As if somehow I am the one who if I get it just right... I'll be able to save people. The thing that I have to realize is that if people are going to be saved, it's going to be because God does it through and often in spite of me. That I have a God who is powerful enough to save people even though He's using me to get the message to you. The only way for that to happen is to pray and invite God to be involved in it. And I think it needs to be more than just the passing every once in a while prayer. We need to be doing that Luke 11 prayer. Banging on the door. The third thing that I see in the text is that we need to practice evangelism by making the best use of our time. There in Colossians 4 and verse 5, walking wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, we know from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, about verse 15, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We understand from that passage that just in general, we as Christians are supposed to be seeking wisdom and making the best use of our time. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, though, he took that very similar idea, and now he's drilled down to a very specific issue. Not only am I to, in general, walk in wisdom and make the best use of my time, as I am working with outsiders, I am supposed to make the best use of my time. There's a couple things that this makes me think of. First of all, I can't possibly be making the best use of my time toward outsiders if I'm not using any of my time toward evangelizing and fishing toward outsiders. All too often, people come up with ideas of things that could be done. And, and so often, we, people make excuses, oh, that won't work. That won't work. That won't work. Oh, that won't work. And in the end, nobody's doing anything. And, and as we said before, guess what? That won't work. I know that we need to be walking in wisdom and we need to be doing those things that are most effective. But the very first step of that is to start doing something. Make sure that we're doing something. Think about Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, you remember that guy who had been given only one talent? And he was afraid that he would lose that one talent, so he didn't do anything. And he came to the master and said, hey, I was really sorry. You're big and bad, and I was afraid you were going to judge me, and it was all going to be awful. So, hey, at least I've got your talent. Here it is. And in Matthew 25, 26, the master answered him saying, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. Was putting it in the bank so that it would have interest, was that the wisest thing for him to do with that talent? 
Absolutely not. But what the Master said was, it would have been better for you to do something than to do nothing. We need to make sure that we're doing something. And we'll gain the wisdom by experience. We don't gain wisdom by just thinking about things. We gain wisdom by doing things, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes. That's how we gain wisdom. That's how we walk in wisdom. The fact is, we're not going to walk in wisdom toward outsiders the very first time we try. But that will help us. We need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And the second thing that makes me think of is that not only do I need to be doing something, but there's certainly some of us here that, that aren't ready to teach someone. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12 talks about the fact that, you know, that at this time you ought to be teachers, but you're not. And I recognize there's probably some of us here who ought to be and aren't, but there's some of us who probably, well, we haven't been doing this very long. It's not that we ought to be and aren't. We just haven't got there yet. But that passage says we can all get there. If he writes to these Christians and generals and says you ought to be teachers by this time, what that says to all of us is that we, we can get there. And so walking in wisdom toward outsiders and making the most of our time means preparing to get there. Yes, we should be praying that God give us strength and wisdom and help us to speak clearly, but one of the ways God is going to do that is by us getting into His Word. We must not think that we can just set the Word aside and just when the opportunity arises, God's just going to speak through us. That's not the way that's going to work. We have to be studying, understanding, and learning. That's making the best use of our time. The third thing that makes me think of, making the best use of our time, we need to make sure that the things that we are doing toward outsiders are really about their spiritual growth. This idea of, of having fellowship halls and ice cream socials and benefits and, and all those kinds of things to try to get people in, that stuff's not about souls. That's not about saving souls. Yes, ostensibly, oh, well, we hope to use that to get them here so then we can start doing that. God's gospel doesn't need our props. God's gospel doesn't need our decorations. God's gospel will free these people from their sins. They don't need hamburgers. They need the gospel. The old adage said, if you hot dog somebody in, somebody else will hamburger them out. But you know what? If we bring them freedom through the gospel, nobody else can offer them anything more than that. That's what we need to be giving. We don't need six flag trips. We don't need movie nights. We need the true gospel that sets people free. That's our job, is to help people overcome sin. And that's what we need to be about. That's making the best use of our time. Doing all that other stuff is distracting us from what God has, has given us to do. And the fourth thing that making the best use of our time makes me think of is that we are supposed to be doing what's effective. We are supposed to be doing what's wise. It is true that doing something is better than doing nothing. But being satisfied with what we've always done, even when it quits working, is not walking in wisdom. If something is no longer working as it used to, let's not just keep it up because that's what, all, what we've always done. Let's do something else. Keep it scriptural, obviously. But, but you know, in years gone by, gospel meetings, you can have a two-week gospel meeting and and on Monday night, they'd be absolutely upset at the preacher, but by the following Friday, they'd be baptized. That's just not going to happen anymore. It's not working like that. We need to use our gospel meetings differently. Sure, in years past, you could go knocking on doors and have a study, and you'd baptize uh, three people whose doors you knocked on before they ever even came into the building. That's not happening like that as much anymore. We need to use door knocking differently. 
As, as things quit working, we need to work something out. Otherwise, we're not being wise and we're not making the best use of our time. And finally, the text says we need to season our evangelism with grace. There in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This harkens back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. In Matthew 5 and verse 13, he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Paul brings that image back to our mind and he says, here's how we're the salt of the earth. We're the salt of the earth when our speech is seasoned with grace. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. When we're talking to outsiders, the way we speak needs to be bestowing grace. It needs to be a gift that edifies and builds up. I have to tell you, what it says there in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5 kind of surprises me. I don't expect it to say, let your speech always be gracious. Or let it always be with grace. I expect it to say, let your speech always be right. Let your speech always be true. Let your speech always be accurate. But when Paul wanted to highlight what we needed to do to add salt to the earth, he didn't, add, he didn't highlight the accuracy or the truth or the rightness. He, he highlighted the attitude, the grace. Now, again, don't misunderstand. Don't go out saying, Edwin said as long as you preach grace, it doesn't matter if you preach the truth. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. We've already demonstrated that this, it's only the truth that will set us free, so we have to be speaking the truth. We've already demonstrated that we need to be praying that God will help us manifest the truth and make it clear. Without that, people will not be saved no matter what we do, no matter how many folks we get in here. But what Paul highlighted was the way we preach that truth that it needs to be with grace. That as we're taking this gospel to people, it's not to prove that we're right and they're wrong. It's not to put people in their place. It's not to have vengeance. It's not to show that we're better. The reason we're taking this is because we see people who are lost in sin just like we were. Of course, we've got to make sure that that's what we think about ourselves. Some of us kind of forget the fact that we were lost in sin. We see folks who are lost in sin just like we were. Their sins might be different from ours, but they're enslaved. Satan has them held captive, and they need the freeing gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why we're bringing it to them, so that they can have the grace of Christ. As Paul said, speaking the truth in love. Again, don't misunderstand. Letting our speech be with grace doesn't mean soft-settling the gospel. Letting our speech be with grace doesn't mean compromising the gospel. There's no grace in that. Letting our speech be with grace does not mean overlooking sins and not holding people to, accountable to their sins. There's no grace in that. That's enabling people to just stay in their sin. But speaking with grace is about our motivation, our tone, our attitude. 
Are we going out to fight people or are we going out to free people? That's the thing that we need to think about. We need to season our evangelism with grace. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5 says that we need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We want to bring outsiders to the inside. It's going to take some wisdom. It's going to take changed lives. It's going to take empowering our evangelism with prayer. It's going to take practicing it by making the best use of our time. And it's going to take seasoning it with grace. We can do that. We can do that. So I want to encourage you. As you leave the building today, grab your fishing nets, grab your rod and reel, put on your waders, grab your tackle box, let's get out in the water and fish. I hope this lesson edified you and glorified God. Let's remember what we've learned. If we want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, we must, one, base evangelism on a changed life. Two, empower evangelism with prayer. Three, practice evangelism by making the best use of our time. And four, season evangelism with grace. If you have any questions about this lesson or any spiritual needs or prayer requests, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you can contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Also, if you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you face-to-face. Please join us for any of our assemblies or classes. You can find times and directions on our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We certainly look forward to meeting you. Finally, I want to remind you again that you can subscribe to these sermons as a weekly podcast by selecting the podcast at iTunes link on our website. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.